Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll pick it up in verse 12. Therefore, may I keep in mind, especially in the midst of trial. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think for a moment there's not a sin that you can't commit. Take heed. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. In other words, temptation is common to everyone but God. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape of which Jesus will show us in the Garden of Gethsemane that you may be able to bear it. It's amazing to me how strong I am in the faith until life takes an unexpected turn. It's amazing to me how tragedy or trial can change the way we think and the way that we act. A diagnosis that comes from a a doctor or a disaster that we're going through, it's amazing to me how strong I think I am until life takes an unexpected turn. In fact, I'll never forget spearfishing in the Bahamas with a good friend of mine. We had jumped off a little 17-foot skiff, and there we were spearfishing. I was coming back to the boat, and lo and behold, a shark decided to greet me. And I knew he was happy to greet me because his mouth was open as he was approaching my general direction. I had fish that I needed to get rid of, and so like the Apostle Peter, I actually now know what it means to walk on water. I got in that boat in a heartbeat, and I left my friend in the water with that shark, and quite frankly, God bless you, I hope you make it out. He swam as fast as he could to get to that boat. He tried to get on. I did not help him one ounce of a bit. He got on the boat, and now I'm ashamed at myself And I looked at him and I said, I can't believe I did it. I'm your pastor. And he goes, it's okay. And I go, no, it's not okay. And I go, why in the world will I do that? And he looked at me because you wanted to survive and sacrifice me. And I go, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to leave you in the water. And he goes, yes, you did. In the midst of trial, it's so easy to give in to temptation because flesh longs to survive. It's amazing how we'll default to the flesh. But this verse promises that God has given us a way to stay strong, that God can help us avoid the pitfalls and the potholes that the enemy puts in our rocky roads of life. The Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane was the rockiest road that Jesus would face in the Gospels. 
And there in the Garden of Gethsemane as the God-man, can you imagine the trauma that was ensuing in his heart and in his mind? It had to be overwhelming. Now I know there is no sorrow in heaven, but I have often wondered if the eternal God-man part of Christ... If the eternal God-man, the man part of Christ, suffers from PTSD at even the thought of that night. I know I do. When my family returned from the war living in Liberia, West Africa, we lived in the Bahamas. And I'll never forget, I was standing in a parking lot of a church ministering to a pastor when a car on the street was driving by. The car hit a speed bump and out of the muffler, the car backfired. The car went. And you know what I did? I dropped to the ground and I started crawling under the car. We had just come out of the war, and when you hear bang in the middle of a war, you drop on the ground. And while I was on the ground crawling under the car, the pastor looks at me and goes, They have medication for that. (laughs) I know what PTSD is. But yet, our Lord. His maturity, his vulnerability, and his spirituality will reveal to us the way of escape in the midst of our trials. Would you turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14? It's the first of three. Maybe you'll write it down. In the middle of your trial, purpose to fulfill Scripture. Purpose to to fulfill scripture. I'm going to pick it up in Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd. Did you see that? For it is written, committed to the word of God. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Of this same event in Matthew chapter 26, the Bible says that Jesus responded in this Garden of Gethsemane moment and said, this will happen. It must happen so that scripture will be fulfilled in my life. Jesus was purposed to fulfill scripture. Now let me explain this moment. The celebration of the Passover has come to a close. They had sang hymns, if you remember from two weeks ago, there in the Passover upper room. And now they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and life is about to take a very unexpected turn. And so what Jesus does is he gives them the word. He lets them know, you are about to be tested. When you go to work, they're going to look and you go, hey, are you one of those Christians? And you get a choice. Will I confess the name of Jesus or will I back away from it? You're going to go to school and you're going to be made to stumble. He's saying that because of me and your association with me, people are going to come against you. And when they strike the shepherd, he says, the sheep will scatter. You see, Jesus knows that they're going to fail. He knows that they're not going to be able to stand up for what they believe in. And can I tell you, church, you can't disappoint an all-knowing God. He knows the decisions that you're going to make. In fact, he knows you better than yourself. 
That's why he tells the disciples, listen, don't say that you're not going to walk away from me because I know that you are. I know that you're, I know you better than yourself. So when they strike the shepherd, I love you so much. I'm giving you direction. When they strike me, it's time for you to scatter. He's giving them the word of God. When they come for me, you don't know this, but when they do, I want you to run. Collectively, starting with Peter, the group will reject this direction from the Lord. They will say to themselves, we will never run away from you. And it's going to cost them greatly. You see, they thought in and of themselves, they would never do what Jesus was telling them they would do. Church, can I tell you something? Don't ever believe that you can never go there. There is no sin outside. There is no sin that you are not capable of. And Jesus is warning them, listen, I know you're not capable to stand. So when they come against me, I want you to run. Maybe it was their pride. Maybe they wanted to keep their disciple reputation. So they made a decision. We're not going to heed what you're telling us to do. Because it's too difficult. It may hurt too much. But if you think Fulfilling the prescription of Scripture is too difficult. Try going your own way and discover the greater cost. The disciples will. Because I have found when a doctor comes in the room and says, you need surgery, no matter how afraid you are, no matter how scared you are, no matter how dangerous the surgery, when the doctor comes in and says the only prescription for you to live is that you have surgery, I guarantee, despite the fear and despite the danger, you'll be willing to go through the surgery so that you can live. Are you willing to do the same with the Word? First and foremost, when you're in the midst of trial, you're going to have to purpose to fulfill Scripture. Secondly, if you're taking note, you're going to need to pour out your heart in prayer in the midst of trial. You're going to need to pour out your heart in prayer in trial just like Jesus. We're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 14 as we venture into new territory, verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples... Sit here while I pray. Now, if you know, there's an entrance into the garden, so he tells them to wait outside the garden, and he's going to go inside the garden. And he took Peter and James and John with him. So the eight stay outside, Judas is gone, and the three go in with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Stop there, if you would, for just a moment. He's about to enter the Garden of Gethsemane, and this place of Gethsemane was a place that he visited frequently. And he went there to pray. 
In Luke chapter 22, verse 39, we know it was his custom to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray. That's why Judas knew exactly where he would be. But I need to let you know something else about the Garden. Gethsemane, the word, it means olive press. You see, in order to make olive oil, in order to get the fruit juice out of an olive, there is a two-step process. The first step It entails putting the olives on a flat place and then crushing the olives with a rock. And then you gather all of those olives, you put them in a basket, and you put them under a heavy rock for a long period of time, and the oil or the fruit juice of the olive oil will begin to come out as the rock gets more and more and more weight upon it. You see, as he's entering into that garden, he's starting the two-part process. For Christ would go into that garden and he would be crushed with the anguish of his future destiny having to be separated from his father. Then he would be taken from the garden of Gethsemane in the second part of the process and he would feel the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders and he would die only to be raised again as the first fruit of our salvation. You see, this entrance into the garden was a two-part process, much like the crushing of an olive. Can you imagine the anguish that the Lord was experiencing knowing he was about to be separated from his father? But he still chooses to be the loving leader. You see, there were, there were 11 of them at this point, but Jesus knew exactly where eight of them were spiritually. So he tells them, the eight, I want you to remain outside of the garden. I'm going to go in to pray. You see, we know from John's gospel there in the upper room, we discover where these disciples were at. Jesus had to say to them, don't be troubled. They were troubled. They were asking questions and questioning him. Where are you going, Philip said. Jesus knew that they were bewildered. He knew that they couldn't handle his vulnerability as their leader. So he said to them, because he loved them, I want you to remain. I'm going to go in. But he takes Peter, James, and John. He takes his companions with him to join him, hoping for compassion. Can I tell you something, church? There is nothing like having those closest to you with us in the midst of our greatest trials. I am so thankful for and grateful for faithful friends who join me in my trail of tragedy and they are with me. You see, as the church, this is our role. Our role is to comfort others in the same way that we've been comforted from God. To have compassionate companions is even why we're doing Compassion Sunday. You see, Jesus shows us by an example that when we're in the midst of our trial, we should gather faithful friends to help us get through that trial. And right now, there are kids in El Salvador who have a need for those of us in the church. And Jesus sets an example of what a compassionate friend will do. They'll come alongside. They'll be a part of the trail of tragedy with you. These three, they were faithful companions. They've been with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and seen his glory. They witnessed his power in raising Jairus from the dead. They saw the compassion of Jesus when he picked up Peter's mother-in-law from her sickbed. 
These weren't the favorites of Jesus. Jesus knew their responsibility. They were going to lead the church, Peter, James, and John. In fact, it's only these three disciples who we see by name doing ministry in the book of Acts. They were leading the church, and Jesus wanted them close because he knew as the leaders what they were going to go through. And he wanted them to be a part of this vulnerable and fragile moment of his humanity because he knew what they would go through as leaders and he wanted them to see what he was going through so that when they went through it, Jesus could truly say, I understand. I know what you're going through in the midst of your trial. I'm with you. And as soon as he was alone with his compassions and left the other eight behind, he vulnerably communicates the depth of his anguish. He's aware of his physical and emotional state. He even says, I'm at the point of death. And let me tell you, church, I've seen this moment several times in hospital rooms before. There is the person lying on the bed. There's a desire for them to hold on to life as they look at the ones that they love around them. And they want to live just another minute longer. And they're holding on in anguish with the love that's in the room. But yet there's so much pain wreaking havoc in their body. They, can't be, they cannot wait to be released from this tent so that their spirit can be with the Lord. I've seen this kind of pain even to death. Truly. And in those moments, it's not good for a man to be alone. Especially in the midst of such grave trials. Being able to communicate his anguish, it reveals to us the need that we have to communicate our anguish in the midst of our trials. You see, bad feelings, bad experiences are like an infection. And if you hold that infection inside, it's going to go systemic. It's going to spread all over the body and it's going to cause further damage. God has given the church and given us close brothers and sisters for us to be able to share in the midst of our anguish. So Jesus tells them, would you stay? Would you watch? Would you be with me? And then he goes off alone. And I'm going to tell you why he went off alone. Because Jesus would go to the cross alone and he was going to have to find his strength in the Father alone. But he wants his friends there. He wants them to watch the interchange between him and his Father so that they can learn when they're in their leader position where they can find their source of strength. He wanted his friends to pray for them in the midst of his trial, but they fell asleep. And so much so, God sends an angel to minister to Jesus because his friends, they fell asleep. But Jesus, he wanted them to reveal the power of pouring out your heart to God. Can I tell you, God can handle it? And that's exactly what Jesus does. In fact, he holds nothing back. In fact, he bears the depth of his soul and he says, let this cup pass. I need to let you know something. This cup that he's speaking of is not the cross. Jesus knew he was supposed to go to the cross. He told his disciples three times, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. It was his mission. It was why he was here. The cup that he was asking to pass was not the cross. 
No, the cup that he was asking to pass is the experience that he was about to go through, that he was going to be separated for, from his father for the first time in eternity. For all of eternity past, he had never been separated from the Father. Let me prove it to you with the grief on the cross. In that moment of despair, Jesus in his humanity, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, that moment and that question defines the grief of him that he's asking the cup to pass in the Garden of Gethsemane. So many people have come up to me and they always say, don't ask God why in the midst of your trial. Do you know how I answer them when they tell me that I can't ask God why? I say this, Jesus did, why can't I? Because there on the cross, he said, why have you forsaken me? This was not a question of him doubting God. This was the anguish of his soul coming out. It's okay to ask God why in the midst of your trial. Jesus knew he would go to the cross He was suffering with the pain of the separation. And look how he pours out his heart in verse 35. He cries out, Abba, Dad, Father. This word is an expression of the intimacy that existed for an eternity between a father and a son. He says to his father as he begins to pray, he says, All things are possible for you, God. All things are possible for you, he says. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. But nevertheless, not my, but your will be done. I'm going to trust you to do what you think is the best thing to do. He went to God with his request in the same way that we can go to God with our requests. You see, in Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us something so precious in Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, the Bible says that we have the Spirit of God and we can cry out, Abba, Dad, Father. We can cry out to God the same way that Jesus, but will we cry out to God the same way that he did? We believe, God, that you can do anything you want. That's why we're coming to you with our request. We believe that you're able. And so we're going to bring every request to you. But are you able to say, we're going to trust that you can, will do whatever you want to do, knowing that you can do whatever you would like to do? Can you trust him? Can you pour out your heart to God in the midst of your trial? I believe. Here's my request. And I trust whatever your answer is. Number three, if you're taking note, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane will show us how to make it through trial by staying spiritually alert. Staying spiritually alert is the secret to survival. Would you take a look at Mark chapter 14, verse 37? Then he came and found them sleeping. He says to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? He just wanted a one-hour prayer meeting. That's it. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Maybe you'll underline this. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them sleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. 
Jesus has asked the guys to pray for him. Would you come with me? Would you stay with me? Would you watch and would you pray? And I'm just going to ask you, could you pray for an hour with me? And they pass out. I get it. I totally get it. They had a rough day of ministry. And at the end of that day of ministry, Jesus says to him, hey, I want you to cook the Thanksgiving meal. I want you to go to the supermarket, buy all the food, and then I want you to prepare it and get ready for the Thanksgiving meal. Our Thanksgiving was their Passover. It was a huge meal. So a long day of ministry, go to the food store, get all the food, you know, make sure you get to Ralph's, get to Vaughn's, get to Sprouts, wherever you're going to go. Get all the food, bring it to the house, then make the fire, prepare all the food, and then we're going to eat it. Well, how do you feel after Thanksgiving? You kind of roll off the table. You kind of roll to the sofa. Then tryptophan takes over, and the next thing you know, I get it. I understand where these guys are at. They're completely wiped out. And at the end of the Thanksgiving meal, Jesus looks at them and says, uh 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 could we just pray for about an hour? You know what's amazing? If I say we're going to have a concert, this auditorium will be filled. For example, next week, Babby Mason, who was formerly in the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, she's going to be here leading worship for our services, all three services. And I know in that announcement, oh, I'm going to look her up. Babby Mason is going to be great. But if I was to say this, tonight, At 9 o'clock, I'm going to have a prayer meeting. Me and three other people will be in my office. (laughs) I get it. Can you imagine at the end of a long day saying, let's have a prayer meeting? I'll never forget. I'm a young single guy. I'm getting ready to go on the mission field. And as I'm getting ready to go, a group of friends of mine decided to have like a hot dog hamburger like potluck so that I could raise support to go out for the year. At the end of the night, after we've cooked hot dogs and hamburgers and handed them out, and the, and the Lord just really blessed us, one of my friends, as I'm leaving, says, hey, we'd like to have a prayer meeting for you. Great. I get down on my knees. They lay hands on me, and I found myself crouching more and more on my knees. The next thing I know, I'm on my forehead. I pass out. I literally fall asleep and I fall over into one of my friend's hands. They're praying for me. And I start snoring in the middle of their prayer. I'm so wiped out. I understand where the disciples are at. I've got a lot of pity for their condition. I really do. That's actually a really sad, true story. You know... Not, I get to humble and humiliate myself every Sunday in front of you, and I get never to hear your embarrassing stories. <laughs> Amen. But what I love about the Lord, he continues to beckon them to be spiritually alert. He goes back to them, and he goes back to them again. Let me tell you why. He knows what's ahead, and they don't. You see, Jesus knows that the enemy is on the prowl. So he asks them to pray with him. With him. He said, could you not pray with me for one hour? Because Jesus is not asking them to do anything more than what he's doing. And would you see that his prayer is not complicated? It's not like a big deal. It's not like you need to know exactly what to say. He simply said, let this cup pass. 
Because it's not a matter of what you say, it's the heart that it comes from. Sometimes in the trail of my tragedy, I just cry out to God, ah! And the Lord goes, I understand. I know exactly where you're at. Because God says, when you seek me with all your heart, not your words, you will find me. You'll find me. He knows troubled times are ahead, church. And he beckons us to pray because we don't know. Church, do you know that the enemy is always trying to get us? Whether you know and you're in the midst of the trial like the Lord, or you're like the disciples on the mountaintop of a Hosanna, king of, son of David, like the disciples were, we've got to stay spiritually alert in good times and bad times because it's so easy to fall into temptation in the midst of a trial. Have you ever been on a diet and you have a bad day and you get home and you go, I deserve chocolate cake? Have you ever done it? Someone say amen. Amen. And maybe it's like, I deserve ice cream. Or I deserve, I don't know what your chocolate is. But you ever had that day where you just feel entitled because it was a bad day and you're just going to eat the chocolate cake? Let me tell you why. It's so easy to fall in the midst of a trial. And so what Jesus wants us to do is practice godliness when we're not in a trial. He beckons us. He constantly comes to us to stay alert when it's good so that when we face a trial, we have practiced so that we can be perfect in the midst of the trial. Let me tell you, do you remember the disciples? They go to the kid who's got a demon in him and they can't get the demon out of him. So they walk up to Jesus on the way home and they go, why weren't we able to do this? And Jesus responds and he says, this kind only comes out with much prayer and fasting. You've got to be spiritual in order to do spiritual things. And when your trials come upon you like a demon from hell, you've got to put the practice of prayer and fasting in your life before that moment so that you can stand in the midst of that moment. So he goes back and he wakes them a second time. And I love what the Bible says. They didn't know how to answer him. And let me tell you why the Bible communicates that. Because there's no excuse worthy of choosing not to be spiritually alert at all times. See, Jesus makes it clear that the Spirit's willing. I know all of us want to show up for prayer. I know all of us want to give our lives to God. But the flesh is weak. Because the flesh and the spirit are at war. In fact, the Bible says in Galatians 5, they're directly opposed to each other. Let me give an example. The flesh is selfish. Well, I'm not giving my $40 a month to sponsor a child of compassion. That's my Starbucks money. Oh, little fleshly. The spirit is selfless. The flesh is prideful. Don't tell me how to live my life and show up to go witness. (laughs) No, but the spirit is humble and wants to learn. 
This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Romans 13, 14, he says this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, feed your spirit, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. I have an announcement to make. Every single one of us in this room is a fleshaholic. And the crowd mumbles. You know, the first step is called denial. Every single one of us in this room is a fleshaholic. And if any one of us takes a sip of our flesh flavor, it will always desire more. Always. That's why we need to choose sobriety. By staying spiritually alert each and every day. By staying connected to God and prayer. It's why Jesus says, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. He's calling us to spiritual sobriety each and every day. Choosing to be spiritually alert. I got a text from a friend of mine just three days ago. And his text was this. Pastor Chet, 365 days sober. Do you know what he was telling me? 365 days of me being alert to the problem. I'm a fleshaholic. And if I give into the flesh one moment, I know I'll go all the way. It's a recognition that Jesus is calling us to a spiritual sobriety, to a spiritual alertness each and every day. Look at the impact on Jesus. It's Mark chapter 14, verse 41. Then he came the third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. In other words, you guys have been sleeping long enough. The hour has come. Look at the confidence. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. I've heard from God. It's going to happen. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Do you see the impact it produces on the Lord Jesus Christ? He's confident. He's determined in the midst of his child. He's prepared for whatever comes before him. But the idea here is this. Now, we have to see how do these principles play out in Christ's life as compared to how they play out in the disciples' life. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking... Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests, the scribes, and the, and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whoever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now look at the impact on Jesus. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Jesus, he was, pur- he was purposed to fulfill the word of God in his life. Jesus had poured out his heart to his father. Jesus, he was committed, absolutely committed to being spiritually alert and being prepared with all that God would have for him. And in the moment where he says, rise, my betrayer is at hand, Judas wastes no time with his dastardly deed, and he kisses him. 
Now, I need to help you understand a kiss of a guy to a guy. You would only kiss someone who is very close to you. And this was a way of greeting. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, in this moment, Jesus looks at Judas and he says this, Friend, why have you come? Now that word friend is a very special word. It's a Greek word that means someone as close as a brother, but not a brother, like family. And I want to warn you, the enemy's display of friendship His kiss on your lips is always laced with poison because his desire is to destroy you. You've got to stay alert to his tactics. And his tactic with Judas was bitterness. Judas was bitter. Jesus, you called me out in front of Mary. You called me out in front of all the disciples. Jesus, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. And I'm going to kiss you in front of everybody the same way that you embarrassed me in front of everybody. And when this moment happens, John tells us in John 18.8 that Jesus gives the command. He says, I've told you I'm he. I've told you I'm the one you're looking for. Therefore, if you seek me, Let these go their way. He's given a direction. It's time for you to run. I know you can't handle it. I know it's going to be too rough for you. I'm giving you the way of escape. It's time for you to get out. But the disciples, they wouldn't follow the word of God. They chose to stay. Jesus did. Jesus submitted to the word of the Father. And I want you to see it again, if you would, in verse 46. They laid their hands on the almighty Son of God. He could have done anything. And he let them take him. Because Jesus was going to fulfill the word of God in his life. Jesus was spiritually alert and spiritually prepared. But the disciples weren't. Take a look. It's Mark chapter 14, verse 47. The Bible says, and one of those, John tells us it's Peter, one of those who stood by, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Can you imagine this moment? Peter goes for the throat. He's a fisherman. He's not a swordsman, and he gets the ear. So now we got this bloody mess, and we've got an ear flopping on the ground, and we've got a guy with no ear. I mean, there's blood, there's ears. It's gross all over the place. Peter, you should have run. Let me tell you why. Peter tried to use worldly weapons to fight a spiritual battle because he was not spiritually prepared. He made the decision, I'm not going to follow the word. He rejected the word. He didn't pour out his heart to God in prayer. He fell asleep. And he for sure was not spiritually alert to what was going on, the attack of the enemy. He was in his flesh. And I see this all the time. People will pick up the sword of anger and begin to slash people's throat. They'll pick up the sword of the outburst of wrath or the sword of jealousy or the sword of slander or the sword of gossip. And they will be in their flesh trying to fight a spiritual battle. But surely the work of flesh should be the first indicator to us that we're not in the Spirit. And in this moment, Jesus looks at Peter and he says this in Matthew 26, verse 53. He says to Peter, Do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father 
and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. Did you see it? Do you think that I cannot now pray to my father? This had to sting for Peter because Peter fell asleep and he never knew the power of prayer in this moment. In Mark chapter 14, verse 48, Jesus answers those that have come against him. Have you come out as against a robber? Swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. But the scripture must be fulfilled. Think of all the good that Jesus had done. Just think of all the gospel stories. Think of all the good he'd done. Let alone think of putting an ear back on in the midst of this huge crisis. Think of all the good that Jesus had done and they're making him appear to be a common criminal. Life has a way to take a drastic turn from the shouting of Hosanna to being treated as a criminal in just a moment. Trials can come upon us in just a moment. But Jesus was purposed to fulfill the word of God. He had poured out his heart to his father and he was spiritually alert so he was willing to face the shame. He was willing to be ridiculed. He was willing to be falsely accused. He was willing to go through the pain because he knew from his father, this is what I have for you. He was even willing to lose all of his friends. Take a look at Mark chapter 14, verse 15. Then they all forsook him and fled. You see, Jesus was prepared, but the disciples were not. Finally, in Mark chapter 14, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him. In other words, the soldiers, not only did they grab Jesus, he's following, they start grabbing this kid. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. How embarrassing. You see, most theologians believe that this young man is Mark. Jesus told Mark to scatter when they strike me, and he didn't. Jesus told Mark, now's your chance. Let go your way. But he chose to follow. This young man refused to listen. He had so much zeal, he wanted to prove that he would never desert Jesus. But he lacked the wisdom of the word. He chose not to follow the words of the master and his folly is actually exposed. He went against what Jesus told him to do to get out of there and it cost him great shame. He ran away buck naked. But remember, when we started this Gospel of Mark, Mark wanted everyone to know you can begin again with Jesus. It's the point of his gospel. And here Mark in his gospel is revealing his greatest mistake in his greatest trial, but yet the Lord is still using him 
to write the incredible gospel according to Mark because there's a truth if you've made a mistake in the midst of your trial, you can begin again. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I do come before you in Jesus' name, and I'm so thankful for your word. And I'm grateful for this 1230 service who so faithfully and diligently come in the middle of their afternoon to hear your word. And I pray for them. Grant them the grace to understand what it means and how to walk through our greatest trials. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask that this would just be a holy moment for a moment. Because in an audience this size, I know some of you are walking through a trial. And you made a mistake. You took out the sword of your flesh and you tried to fight a spiritual battle with a worldly weapon. Maybe you blew it and got angry. Maybe you got frustrated at your spouse in the midst of a marital confusion. (coughs) You're facing your greatest trial. And like Mark, you thought you could prove Jesus wrong. But you find yourself now exposed, maybe even ashamed. Christian, maybe you need to be like Jesus today. Because Jesus, he took three friends and he said, hey, listen, I need you to come and pray with me. Because I'm about to ask you to do the same. We want to pray for you. And unlike Peter, James, and John, we want to pray with you. We want to stay alert with you. And we want you to know that we're with you. And I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat. Listen, believer. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and say, I'm walking through my trial. And I need prayer. Because I messed up. But I know I can begin again. But maybe you're sitting here. Let me go back for just a moment, believer. Jesus was in his trial. And he came forward with three of his guys and he showed his vulnerability and said, I need prayer. And he fell on the ground and he actually humbled himself before the Lord. We're the church. We're supposed to pray for each other. But maybe... You were dragged here by your mother and she told you, listen, you won't have to pay rent if you go to church with me every Sunday. But you don't know Jesus. Do you see now what he did for you? The pain and the agony of the cross. It was the crushing of the weight of your sin. Because there was no way for you to get to God. And the only way that you could is if someone lived a perfect life and then paid the price of your sin, of the things that you've done wrong. And Jesus did that for you. Now I know the world who's in partnership with the devil is trying to convince you there is no heaven, there is no God. Can I let you know the devil's a liar? Of course the world is preaching a false doctrine. Jesus, he died for your sins. And like Jesus, 
every single one of us have an appointment with death. Where do you want to spend your eternity? Do you want to spend it with God in heaven or separated from God in hell? See, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, including you, would believe would not perish, would not be separated, but would have everlasting life. We want that for you. And so if you're a believer and you're in the midst of your trial, we're going to ask you to come forward just like Jesus so your friends can be in prayer with you and for you. But if you don't know Jesus and you want to begin fresh with him today, knowing that you know that you can go to heaven, I want you as Gannon sings to come forward so that we can be in prayer with you and for you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.